The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, let me ask you a question as we, as we launch into this passage for today. Would you consider yourself a thankful person? Do you th- consider yourself a thankful person? Um, I, I know that I'm a, I'm a week early on this. I'm familiar with that. We're a week early on the Thanksgiving sermon, but this is where we are in our series. Um, if you struggle to consider yourself a thankful person, I hope that this passage and reflection on this and the good news of God's grace will give you great cause to be thankful. Uh, if you thought yes, however, if you thought yes to that question, yes, you consider yourself a thankful person, my follow-up question would be this, and in what are you thankful? And in what are you thankful? What's the basis of your thanksgiving? And as you're thinking about that, the things that make you thankful in your life, imagine that you went home this morning after church, and, and as you pull up to your house, on, you see on your front yard all of your possessions that you own in a pile engulfed in flames. I mean everything, even the immaterial stuff in a sense, even your, your, your 401k, if it could be materialized, it's, it's all there on the bonfire. Your TV and your Daily Digest, I don't know what you're into, your, your, uh, you know, your, um, your whole collection of Johnny Cash albums. Everything is there in the front yard, just engulfed in flames. It's all destroyed. Are you still thankful? Are you still thankful? I bet a sight like that could wipe that thankful smile off your face when you pull up to it. Now, this isn't the time to be super spiritual. I don't know if you, you're trying to gather where I'm going with this. It's not a time to say, well, if you're not thankful at a site like that, that you're not a good Christian, you really need to grow in your faith because all you need is Jesus, and you should be thankful in God at a time like that. I'm, I'm not saying that. Of course you're not thankful in a moment like that, right? Thankfulness is, 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 at a moment like that is really far from your heart. It's the last thing that you feel. You're unthankful. You're devastated. You're discouraged. And I think it's because... The, the root of our thanksgiving, the root of being thankful, is, I think for all of us, a sense that our lives are stable and secure. Stability. When we think about stability, this is what makes us thankful. And at the moment we see everything in our life kind of engulfed in flames, we feel at that moment most unstable. Stability is a, a coveted quality in every sphere of human life. Governments talk about stable markets. Uh, What's the best news when you're in the hospital waiting room? Good news, she's in stable condition. We're thankful for the roof over our head, but not just any roof, but a stable and secure roof, right? Ships have things called stabilizers in order to counteract the turbulent ocean currents. If you sit in a chair, maybe the first thing that you acknowledge and are thankful for is this is a good, sturdy, stable chair. Here's a question. Is it a compliment or not a compliment to say of a person, he has a very unstable temperament? Not a compliment, right? Something more that you would say on the witness stand in court. Now, stability is what we seek. Stability is what makes us thankful. Stability is the first thing that vanishes when we see our whole lives destroyed in the lawn in flames. Will I be okay? What will happen to me tomorrow? Will I ever make it? These are ultimately questions of stability, are they not? 
And there are questions that Paul addresses in this passage for us today. In the midst of a lot of struggles in their life, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of fear, in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of confusion about their future, there is a lot of temptation and frustration uh, facing this Thessalonian church, and Paul shows no panic at all. No alarm to their situation, no urgency to come in and rescue them. On the contrary, what he does is he expresses, expresses deep and profound thanksgiving for what is going on. He does not give way to the changing circumstances, but he thanks God, and so can they. In the midst of looking at their life in, in a sense of everything is engulfed in flames or is burning before their eyes, he is thankful and expresses thanksgiving. His thankfulness is due entirely to the confidence and stability that they have in God and in God's loving purposes for them. See, we are only as stable as, as the one who upholds us. We are only as stable in our lives as the one who is holding us, the foundation upon which we stand. And the main point of this passage is thanking God for his activity in our lives and the good purposes that he has for us and in our lives. And there's three reasons for which God is to be thanked. And there are three reasons, therefore, for why we can be stable no matter what happens in our life. We're thankful that God chooses us. We're thankful that God changes us. And we're thankful that God completes in us what he started. Great things to be thankful for, aren't they not? Let's look at first the thankfulness that we have. We are thankful that God chooses us. We had an opportunity almost uh, identical to see this same passage in the first letter of Thessalonians several weeks ago. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 reads this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now this passage he says again, but we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Almost identical thanksgiving that Paul gives at the beginning of his first letter and at the end of his second letter. The idea of God's choice, Paul says, I'm thankful that God has chosen you. The idea of God's choice in our salvation or the biblical doctrine of election is often a topic filled with a lot of confusion for people and even rejection by many. Yet even though it might confuse us or twist our mind, it has the capacity to greatly comfort those who are struggling in their hearts. And it's entirely consistent with Paul's teaching on salvation and Jesus' teaching on salvation. And the comprehensive teaching on salvation that we find in Scripture, we're able to see through Paul's writings, his theology on salvation. If we were to ask him, what do you believe how is a person saved? How, how does a person come to a place of salvation? He would answer this in Ephesians chapter 2. He would say, He has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. He would say, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And was this just Paul's theology? Was this his belief that God chose us before the foundations of the world? Well, it was Jesus' theology as well. 
In John chapter 6, Jesus himself says, but there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless, no one can come to me unless it is the Father who draws him. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know God? The only way that it's possible is if God draws us to himself. And so why does Paul thank God for choosing them? as a way of encouraging them in the midst of struggle. And how can we be encouraged by the fact that God chooses us as an act of his love in the midst of our discouragement and our struggle? Well, for those who might struggle with this, I want to ask a couple questions. For those who don't believe maybe that our salvation is a result of God's choosing and his election before we were even born, a couple questions. One, What do we make of the storyline in Scripture? And what do we make of Jesus' theology and Paul's theology? And a place like this in the passage, what do we make of teaching like this when Paul says, God chose you before you were born? So my question, would you be explicitly, when Scripture explicitly lays out the cause of our salvation as God's election, what do you make of that? And the second question is more personal. If if we're not saved by God's gracious choosing, then what, what saves us? What is that action? Is it, is it our action? Is it our good work? Is it our good choosing? Is it our righteousness? What is it that saves us? If it's not God, then what is it? Well, we're left with really few options after that. It's, it's, it's us. If we're not saved by God's choosing, then we're saved by our choosing. And if we're saved by our choosing, then, then the person who gets all the glory and, for our salvation is who? It's us. And Paul explicitly says in this passage and elsewhere that it isn't us that gets the glory, but when Jesus returns and our salvation is is fulfilled, the one who gets the glory is Jesus. And Jesus gets the glory and we boast in Christ because it's he who gets the credit. It's because he is responsible for our salvation. Jesus gets the glory because all of our salvation is credited to his work and not ours. And so for the Christian who is struggling, this is incredibly comforting. That we are held secure, not by the endurance of our character. We're held secure, not by our record. We are held secure in the righteous and wise and merciful choosing of God. You see, if salvation is a matter of our choosing, don't you realize that we will always be wondering if we have it? The person who who rests in their own choosing of God will never have any ground to feel secure. They'll always be wondering after every sin, is that the sin that proves that I never really truly believed in God in the first place? When we struggle, we'll wonder if we ever chose God to begin with. When we're suffering or when we're weak in faith, which happens regularly throughout the course of our life, we wonder if our choosing of God really was ever genuine. Did it ever really stick? When we sin, we're wondering if it's that sin that finally rips us from the fellowship of God and we'll always feel insecure We will need others to love us. We will need to find our favor with God through our good work, through our reputation, through our accomplishments. But Paul wants us to feel encouraged that if you are a Christian today, it is the result of God making a choice to do a miraculous work in your heart by his grace. 
apart from which you would never truly know or choose God. That if you trust in God today as you sit and hear this message, it is because God's love and affection has been poured out on you by His grace, by an act of His mercy, apart from your own doing. And that's good news. It should comfort our hearts. It should make us feel stable and secure in our life. And in the midst of the turbulence that happen in the waves of life, we have this stabilizer that keeps us secure. We, our life is built not on shifting sand, but on the rock of God's grace. So no matter what winds come our way, we are held secure. Brothers and sisters, this is meant to not confuse us. The doctrine of election is primarily meant to encourage and comfort us. What about the choice, though? Because as you sit there and you're wondering, well, I did choose God. I did confess faith in God. There was a marked moment in my life where an invitation was given, and I said, yes, that is what I want. And at that moment, we felt our life change and a security brought into our life and comfort and peace. What about that moment? Well, let me assure you that that moment was very real. It was packed and loaded with spiritual significance. It, you were not imagining it. You did choose to place your rest in God. But often what we do when we view our salvation is we tie the, the track of our salvation back to the moment we believed. And Paul wants us to actually trace it much further back. For us, in our knowledge of our salvation, it is true that the moment we believe becomes the starting point of our understanding of how we are saved. But we see the wisdom and mystery of the gospel is that we trace it actually further back to the moment of God's choosing of us before we were even born. And then God was orchestrating His wonderful, gracious, providential plans to bring about that moment where we hear the gospel and then we decide to choose and rest in it. And in our understanding from that moment, we are new creation. But from God's perspective, it began long before. Paul is telling us that we get to trace our salvation even further back to God's initiation with us. God chose me and I'm saved because he chose me. I love him because he first loved me. This is language of the scriptures. It's language of the cry of God's people forever. I understand that this could also serve as some more objections if salvation is not based on any good that God sees in us, and it's not based on, even in spite of our failure to do good, then why, tell me, why does God choose some and not others? And I want to tell you, I can answer that question for you in four simple words. I do not know, okay? I do not know. That's, this, is, this is question is far above my pay grade. And, and you do not know. And, but the, the scriptures are adamant about this point. It is not the role of God's creation to know why the creator does what he does. Rather, it is the role of God's creation to trust in their creator and to delight in their creator and to look at the works of the Creator and say you are good and wise and perfect and just. 
and holy and majestic and you're not like me. And your wisdom is not my wisdom and your ways are not my ways. And so the role of God's creation is not to sit back and say, that doesn't seem just, I would do it differently. And God would say, where were you when I laid the foundations? Where were you when I measured the span of the universe? Where were you when I created you? We are not smart enough to place ourselves in the role of figuring out why God does everything he does. And that's okay. Why does God harden some hearts? Why does he soften others? The mystery is hidden in the deep recesses of God's perfect mind. And it's hidden in the deep recesses of God's perfect mind in places that I have yet to know and discover or to, that have been revealed to me or to you. But one day we will, it will be revealed to us. We are told that we will be, we will know fully as we are fully known. We will see as God sees. We will see that perspective. But Paul does not leave us completely hanging. He actually does give us a, a clue. He gives us an answer per se. He says, we're loved by God. The reason that God chooses us, and I know this isn't going to help. The reason that God chooses us is because he does. The reason that we are saved is because he loves us. The reason we are loved is because we are. See, it doesn't help, does it? <laughs> Why did you do that? Because I did. Oh, thank you. That makes perfect sense. And I'm fully, all the confusion is all, all done. The reason those kids, right? Those reason those kids liked Apple Jacks. They just do, okay? No? Any 90s kids here? Okay. Tracking with me? He chooses us. He looks upon us with favor. He loves us. He accepts us, not because of any good that we have done, but because of his good pleasure to give us his mercy. That's why he does it. He wants to. This is the gospel, that even though we are unfaithful to him, he takes us as his bride. Even though we squander his blessings, he takes us as his children and adopts us into his family, that even though we've cursed him as our enemy, he takes us as his friends. Why do you do that? Why do you do that, God? And he says, because I love you. I did it because I wanted to. Surely you've seen something good in me. He says, I did not. And in fact, the moment you were the worst, that's the moment I made you mine. He chooses us. But if that were not good enough, we ought not to be thankful only that God chooses us and saves us and rescues us from the punishment of a consequence of sin. We could be thankful for much more. So if I just prayed here and left, this would be great encouragement for your life, right? That we are secure and held secure in the providence of God, his, his election of our lives, his unconditional love. That would be a great message. We've got a little bit more time, though. And there's, better, there's actually more good news. Not only are we thankful that God chooses us, we're thankful that God changes us. He does not choose us and leave us as we are. He finds us and then he sanctifies us. In fact, the rational flow of Paul's argument is that we are saved through the sanctifying work of God in us. Sanctification, we saw this concept earlier in the letter, in the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Sanctification is a word we might not use every day. It's an important biblical word that conveys God's will and purposes for our lives. And that is that we are transformed. 
that we are changed, that we are changed and transformed in the image of Jesus Christ from one degree to the next. It is his plan and will for our life is complete transformation, the complete removal of all sin and all of its consequences and glorified into the person uh, and nature, or the person and glory of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you another question. How will you change to be more like Jesus? Not, not what will you change. I didn't say what will you change. So you're thinking, okay, I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. No, not, not what needs to change. How? What will, what will accomplish that? What power will accomplish that change in your life? No doubt there are things you wish to change about yourself. You hope in 5, 10, 20 years from now that you're not the same person you are today, but you're a version of yourself that looks much more like Jesus. How will that happen? You may not remember this movie, um, but it was one of my earliest movies that I can remember watching where I can recall being moved with emotion and really feeling kind of choked up in my heart. Uh, no, it wasn't Home Alone. Uh, although, that hug that happens between Kevin and his mom on Christmas morning, if you watch that and don't weep, then you're a monster, okay? <laughs> It's a movie called Regarding Henry. Okay, some of you are with me. With Harrison Form, it's a Ford. It's a movie about this cutthroat lawyer. He survives the grit through, of his life through the grit of his ambition. He walks through everyone and over anyone to get to the top. He's very successful, but he's alienated his friends, his wife, his, his children, his coworkers. One night, he goes out to the convenience store at night to pick up some supplies. He's shot in the head caught in the middle of a attempted robbery, and he suffers severe brain injury. And due to this dramatic or traumatic brain injury, he becomes the sweetest and most compassionate guy in town. He wins back the affection of his wife. He wins back the affection of his daughter. He rekindles relationship with his coworkers. He's compassionate, humble, soft-spoken, and he discovers a life that he never had but always wished that he would have. The Bible speaks of something similar happening to Christians, not where we are changed through a, a blow to the head, but changed through a new heart, a new motivations, new loves, new hope. It's not brain surgery, but it is heart surgery. It is a work of God in us that doesn't just make us better, but is a dramatic confrontation in our life that makes us entirely new. And it's a transformation by the Spirit. It happens through the Spirit of God. How will you change? Through your own ambition, through your own grit, through your own determination to turn over a new leaf in your life and promising to yourself that you will be different than you are today. We need something much more than that. It's a transformation by the Spirit in tandem with the truth of the gospel. Do you see this? Paul links these two things together. Two things together that are very important. That, we, that God chose us, that we will be saved through sanctification by the truth of the gospel. And the change that God works in us is essentially involving it involves the activity of remembering and believing and resting on the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in the substitutionary atonement and death of Jesus for our sins. 
we, we are sanctified through the Spirit as we look upon the gospel and apply those truths to our own life, not just in our salvation, but how it applies to every area of life, our relationships, our work, our temperament, personality, our fears, our hopes, our loves, our dreams, our wishes, and everything. And as we rest in the truth and apply that to our lives, the Holy Spirit is making us new, transforming us. And it is through that work of sanctification, it culminates in the perfect sanctification that happens when Jesus returns. I heard someone say, seeking stability in our lives through self-salvation is the sin of all sins. Let me say it again. Seeking stability in our lives through self-salvation is the sin of all sins. For it is the most significant problem hindering our ability to grow in the gospel. The number one problem hindering our ability to grow in the gospel is relying on our own power to do so. The power of the gospel is not only the power to be saved. It's not just power as an entrance into the kingdom of God. And then we work to our salvation, to that finish line, by our own strength. The power of the gospel is also the power to grow. A good definition of sanctification might be this. It is a narrowing of the gap between our confessional faith and our functional faith. Confessional faith. This is what I believe, that Jesus died for me, that he loves me, he accepts me, not based on my character, but the righteousness of Jesus. Our functional faith is how we live. And often we have a great, uh, many of you have a great sophisticated confessional faith. You know your Bible. You know what it says. But the greatest distance between a confessional faith and a functional faith is 18 inches. What are you talking about? It's the distance between our brain and our heart. I believe this, but do I actually, really, does it flow out of my life? Do I really embrace it? Is my passion? Do I apply it to every relationship and conversation that I have and every goal? Well, you see that the gap then between our confessional faith and functional faith is quite wide. We confess that God loves me and I'm secure in his grace, that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. He accepts me in spite of my failures. But then we remain anxious, paralyzed by people-pleasing, fear and self-loathing when we fall short of God's commands. Well, we don't believe it. We don't believe we belong to God and held in his love. We don't believe that he chose us before the foundations of the earth. We don't believe that our sin will never take us from God's, the grip of his love. Why do we hate ourselves when we sin? Why do we loathe ourselves? Why do we hate others when they sin rather than see them in compassion? How does this work out in our daily lives? Well, I need a new metaphor, and it needs to be another show. I apologize. I really wanted to do just one show reference, but it just wouldn't work. So here's another one. There's this new show on Netflix called Living With Yourself. Uh, Janae, you know, I, I, I was telling Janae, she's like, when do you watch these shows? I'm like, when you go to sleep. Okay, it's a middle-aged man played by Paul Rudd. He lives a miserable existence. His life, his work, his family, everything is a mess. I mean, he is the most down-and-out failure that you can imagine. He lacks intimacy with his wife. He's a failure at work. He's crushed by the weight of the world. He goes into this spa, which promises to make him new. And 
Long story short, the spa clones people and creates a perfect version of yourself with a perfect DNA. It takes your DNA and makes it perfect. And this perfect DNA is created and it's a fully formed person. And uh, it's totally realistic. I love this show. And it, <laughs> so perfect temperament, perfect personality, perfect engagement with the world, perfect intellect. Uh, as if you've never done anything wrong. And normally what happens is the old self is then euthanized and killed off, leaving behind the perfect clone to survive. But naturally, of course, there's this malfunction that happens in the spa. And the miserable version survives. And the perfect version survives. And they meet each other. And now they have to figure out how to coexist in life together. Is this not a story about the Christian or not? If it's not, I don't know what is. We exist in our life both as a sinner and a saint. And we're walking through life believing in the, the, that, we are, that we are accepted by God, that we are looked because of the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at us as if we have never sinned. We have a hope and a future. We have nothing to fear, and yet we still live with the miserable self that is trapped inside of us. And we just want to kill that off. Well, shouldn't my faith just like kind of euthanize that version of myself and me just live in kind of perfect harmony with myself and the world around me? And we're frustrated that it doesn't work that way. Justified by grace, through faith, accepted, chosen, destined for glory, yet struggling, imperfect, tempted, and weak. This is how we work this out in our daily life, existing both simultaneously as both a sinner and a saint. But God is not done. And Paul wants us to know that his perfect plans for us will be completed. And what he began in us, he will finish. And that old man or woman will eventually not even be a memory, but will be fully made new. To the point when Jesus returns, we will glorify him for the work he has done. We will praise Jesus for the sacrifice that was given. We will delight in the glory of who uh, he has made us, but we are not there yet. So there is a work of our salvation that has yet to be realized. And that's the final thing that Paul thanks God for. Thankful, not only that we are chosen or that we are changed, but that God completes what he started. And it is here that we see something so clear. The eternal stability of the people of God. In the purposes of God. This passage is not so much about the steadfastness of the Christian character. That sentiment is nowhere to be found in this passage. But this passage is about the steadfastness of God and his purposes. Not about the endurance of our lives, but the endurance of Christ and his character for us. Yes, Paul says, So then, stand firm, brothers, and hold to the traditions that we taught you. But he says, so then. right? What does so then mean? It's like saying therefore. And we have to ask ourselves when we come to this command, what is it there for? Why is he saying that? And it comes after all that Paul has said and, and communicated to us. It's as if Paul is saying, because it is God who holds fast to you, hold fast to him. Because it is God who stands firm, 
in you. Stand firm in him. Be stable, for it is God who stabilizes you. Be not afraid, for your future is secure. Brothers and sisters, if you have doubts that you're accepted by God or find it difficult to believe that you're accepted to God, acceptable to God because of your past or present sins, or if you struggle to believe that God would ever love you as you are today, or feel that you always fall short and you just can't get your life together, or if you hide in shame because of your life and choices, you ought to be infinitely helped and comforted by the fact that we are justified by faith and not by works. You of all people should be comforted and immensely helped by the news that it is not your character that makes you secure. We are justified, pardoned, pardoned of sins, treated by God as his beloved children, not by our ability to hold ourselves up, but his ability to hold us up. In Christ, he is always and forever for you and not against you. There is no greater privilege than our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ choosing alone. Here's one way the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 8. What shall we then say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he who, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Don't you see, after hearing this good news, Paul would naturally say, okay, what are you afraid of? Who can bother you? Who can condemn you? Who can rip you from the love of God? No one. Nothing. No created thing, no, see, no, 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 no thing seen or unseen, not even the devil himself, and not even you. The Christian ought to be the most thankful person because the Christian is the most stable. Remember we said that thankfulness is a result of our perceived stability? Christians are the most stable. We ought to be the most thankful. Not a result of our character, of course, but our rest in Jesus. Stability is impossible without Christ. It is for this that Paul prays for them. What is the ultimate secret to the stability of the Christian? It's the love of God. He has set his love upon us. He loves us still, and this love will never let us go. God, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures as long as you do a good job. <laughs> his steadfast love endures. Let's pray.